Ephesians 1.5, and the message is entitled, What About Predestination? So, Paul has indicated that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus here in Ephesians. And then proceeded to indicate the blessing. Remember once again that verse 3 through 14 is one complete sentence in the Greek. You know, it's almost like a little kid when they're talking, they go, and, 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 you know, they're looking for breathing, you know. Paul just has big, long sentences. We looked at the first point, the proclamation of election this morning, marked by three truths in verse 4. The one who did the choosing, the time of the choosing, and the purpose of the choosing. And we touched a lot on what is called Calvinism or Reformed Theology. We will also make reference to that again because it is a poison to the body of Jesus Christ. It divides, it destroys. It's a doctrine that is nowhere found in the Bible. Now, the doctrine of election and predestination is, but not the way they teach it, under the um, acronym TULIP. Okay, so it's very important. We've done a whole series on that. I will encourage you to go online. You don't have to purchase it. Get on there, download it, listen to it, study it, go through it. Very, very important. Now we want to take the second point, the explanation about election described in three ways here in verse 5. Verse 5 follows by saying, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. So, the three ways that it's described by here, the explanation is first, the manner of our election in the first part of five. Second, the purpose of our election. And thirdly, the means of our election. And he lays it out. It's an explanation of the previous verse. Let's begin here with the manner of our election. Listen to his words. Having predestinated us. Paul revealed the manner of our election by God the Father as predestined. The word predestined, purizo, P-O-O-R-I-Z-O, when you translate it into the English letters. It means to predetermine to determine or mark out beforehand. The word is a participle in the aorist active tense in the Greek. The idea is to fix and establish in advance in eternity. Okay? One described it as the placing of offense around those people who accept his provision for salvation. The word appears in this form only six times in the New Testament. Acts 4.28, Romans 8.29, verse 30, 1 Corinthians 2.7, and Ephesians 1.5 and 11. The only place it's found. Five times. Election, as we have noted this morning, does not deny human responsibility to respond as God initiates through the gospel. Not predestination. So it doesn't deny human responsibility. God initiates always, we respond. By the way, 
men initiate, women respond. <laughs> All right? Men ask women to marry. I know there's some that turned around, but what I'm saying, okay? It's the man who initiates and a woman responds. A man is moved by what he sees. A woman is moved by what she feels. Totally different. Not contradictory. Compliments. Very important. Now, Calvinists who deny man's free will will automatically reason God predestines some to eternal damnation. This is wrong. It's found nowhere in Scripture. And yet they declare it all the time. You cannot teach from the absence of Scripture, ladies and gentlemen, or human rationale or conclusion. But election, predestination, and man's free will are all scriptural. But we cannot understand how they work because we don't have foreknowledge or omniscience. Foreknowledge means you have the ability to know what happens before it happens. Omniscience means you have all knowledge. Any takers? All right. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They're beyond our thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8, 9 says, higher than the heavens. And yet there's a lot that we do understand when we're born again. We can understand the word of God. We understand the gospel plan. We understand God's grace. But we don't know everything. Now the text says, God the Father, notice, predestined the church. As you read the New Testament. The corporate body, not individuals being saved. He predestined the church as his church, his bride, but not individuals. In like manner, God chose Israel to represent him to the other nations. He says this in Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, Isaiah 43, 1 through 10, and many other places. That God chose Israel does not mean or imply that he rejected all other nations or denied salvation to other people. You realize that, right? The truth is just the opposite. God chose Israel to take the message of salvation to the rest of the world, not particular individuals. Yet the majority of the nation of Israel rejected Jesus. Okay? God's dealing with the nation of Israel. Not everybody who says it's an Israeli is of the remnant, right? Paul makes that very clear. So, Israel was chosen the nation of God's representation, and they were supposed to bring the nations in, proselytize, centripetal, coming in. We, the church... We go out to the nations, that's centrifugal. Like if you get going in a circle, the, the G-forces throw you out. Centrifugal, okay? Centripetal, you come in, all right? Two different functions. Same effect, salvation for the others, okay? In like manner, God predestined from the foundation of the world that the New Testament church would exist as his witness to the world. You're the light and the salt of the earth. Now, 
Notice Paul revealed that the Bible never uses predestination in view of foreknowledge and election unto salvation, as we stated this morning. But it always unto specific blessings that accompany salvation. Okay? So the election and predestination is towards blessing and service. Not individual salvation. Context, context, context. We spoke about it real clearly this morning, okay? You can prove anything from the Bible out of context. You can even prove that God is dead. Out of context, okay? So a text out of context is nothing but a pretext, okay? To make it say what you want to say. If you're faithful and true to the state of the context then the text will speak on its own. It will tell you exactly what God intended and what he meant. Very clear. Now, the term predestination and election are used interchangeably as marked out beforehand for a special purpose and blessing. The only reason ever given is by the phrase according to for knowledge. That's the phrase. In harmony with his foreknowledge, the foreknowledge of God. And you find this in 1 Peter 1 2. So he predestined what he foreknows. It's simple, right? You got to know it before you can declare it, right? If God knows everything, then his omniscience is the primary source. The foreknowledge is an extension of his all-knowledge. Calvinists turn it around. They put the focus on the foreknowledge and make omniscience the secondary. It isn't. That's the reverse. It's wrong. Now, the foreknowledge of God is based on his omniscience, not his decrees, as Calvinists teach. You always hear when Calvinists or neo uh, Reformed theology says, well, the decrees of God, the decrees of God. I talk about the decree. What decrees are you talking about? Where are they at? Six times the word predestined, again, the word perizo, appears in, and five come from Paul. The first two are in Romans. Listen to them. For whom he foreknew, which is prognosco, Knowing beforehand. He also predestined, there's the word perizo, to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, perizo again, second time, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. You find in Romans 8, 29 and 30. So he, those he foreknew would be open to the gospel, he calls and he predestined. But it's based on his foreknowledge. Not his decree, I'm going to choose some and I'm going to reject others. That's what the Calvinists teach. Okay, so I, I, I made the illustration. If you weren't here this morning, I'll do it again. I'm God. And I'm going to teach election the way Calvinists teach it, okay? You guys on this side? You guys are going to heaven. You guys on the side going to hell. 
There's only one problem. You both deserve hell. So how can I be holy? How can I be just? The only way God can be holy, just, and true is that all being deserving of hell, he makes the provision for all through the sacrifice of his son and he allows man to choose whether he wants to be saved or not. So that when he judges you, he can judge you righteously because he made the provision for you. The rejection was not by God's predestination. The rejection of the gospel was by your own free will to reject the gospel, not believe it or think that it's worthy during this life. You understand? Simple. Now, both of these verses in Romans 8, 29, 30, by implication teach that foreknowledge concerns those whom God knows will believe the gospel to be saved. Not that he predestined them to believe the gospel. If we say that God predestined some to believe and some to disbelieve, then we are making God unjust. He is forcing you to go to heaven or he's forcing you to go to hell. That sound just to you? And then he's going to try and judge you for that? When he's the one that made the choice? It's, it's a crazy doctrine. Now this should not bother anyone. It simply means God knows from the beginning who will ultimately be saved. And thereby the blessings of their inheritance has been planned and bestowed to those who are saved. Why? Because God has foreknowledge. He knows. He knows beforehand. Ephesians 2, 7 says, That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Those who believe the gospel are in Christ Jesus. Those are the ones that he will bless. Those are the ones that he will be working on behalf. He didn't predestine them. He made the provision, and they, by the response to the gospel, become saved. Now, neither of these passages teach that God predestined or elected some for salvation unconditionally. We said this morning that term never is found in the Bible. The second point of Calvinism, the tulip, unconditional election. Where do you find the Bible? Nowhere. So the God predestined or elected us to Christ's likeness, as do the remaining four passages containing the word predestination. We are predestined to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. If you believe that God predestined you because you have responded to the gospel, there must be some transformation and confirmation to the image of Jesus Christ. If there isn't, and a predestination. You're predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. If you're not becoming more like Jesus Christ, I don't know what you base your relationship on. Simple. Now the third appearance, Paul says, and you find it in 1 Corinthians 2, 7. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God ordained. There's a word again, perizo. Before the ages. For our glory. The context is the wisdom of the gospel for the believer already saved, determined by God beforehand. Nothing stated about the elect few. Never found in scripture. 
The chosen frozen, they're not in here. They're not in the Bible. The fourth appearance is in our text here. Having predestined Parizo, us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Here in verse 5. The benefit and blessing is to the adoption of sons. That's the blessing. That's the privilege. The fifth appearance of Paul says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined. Porizo again. According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You find that in chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 11. There's the five passages that the word is found. Five in the entire New Testament. <laughs> the inheritance is the blessing of predestination. Let me repeat that. The inheritance is the blessing of predestination. Now the sixth and the last time is in Luke. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined, Porizo, before to be done. Acts 4.28. There it is. The context is the fulfillment of the plan of redemption by Jesus. These are the only six passages that mention predestination and not one of them teaches that God preordained from ages past who should be saved to eternal life and who should be damned to eternity as taught by Calvinists and Calvinism. Not one. It's an invented, not the basis of that, if you go through the whole series that we've gone through, it's Augustinian theology that came out of the Catholic Church by Augustine. And then he recanted it, he rejected it. But all, all the people that came out, the reformers, came out of the Catholic Church and they hung on to Augustinian theology. And Calvin, being a young, smart lawyer, Package it nice, neatly. But it doesn't work. If you look at the history of John, when I do that whole, John Calvin, when I did that whole series, I mean, he forced people. He executed people and everything because he, you know, he's, because once you're saved, you, you're not supposed to sin. Really? They call him the Protestant Pope. Amazing. Predestination and man's free will have been illustrated as two oars in a boat. You need two oars to go straight. One, you go in circles. Okay? Keeps you in line. The human problem of predestination and free will is no problem for God, who is eternal. God being eternal is perpetual. He has no beginning or end. He always has been. 
God being eternal has nothing to do with growth, development, or maturity. He is immutable in every attribute. He cannot learn anything. He cannot grow. He cannot increase. He cannot decrease. All of his attributes attributes are immutable. If you go down to the Pacific Ocean, you take a five-gallon bucket, and, and you dip it in, you just decrease the Pacific Ocean by five gallons. You take all the sins of the world that have ever been forgiven. And what has it done to grace? Nothing. Grace is immutable. It's inexhaustible. It doesn't increase. It doesn't decrease. One of his attributes. He is called the everlasting God, the eternal God. Genesis 21, 33, Deuteronomy 33, 27. I am that I am, he says, the becoming one, having no beginning nor end. Isaiah calls him the eternal father. Exodus three fourteen, Isaiah 9, 6. He is from everlasting to everlasting, which means from the vanishing point to the vanishing point. Psalm 92, or, or Psalm 90, verse 2. Daniel tells us that his kingdom and dominion are eternal in Daniel 4, 3 and 34. God being infinite has no limitations or hindrances then. Being self-determinate and self-existing. He needs nothing outside of himself. God didn't say, you know, I'm lonely. I'm going to make man. I'm getting bored. I'm going to make some animals. He is self-existing. He needs nothing outside of himself. Everything you see is created by him. There's nothing that exists that wasn't made by him and for him. He is eminent, which means he is involved in the world and its process. But he never violates the free will of man. He allows the sinful nature of man to run its course and knowing what's going to happen, he declares things before it happens and so when it happens, you know it's God. According to Calvinists, everything is predestined by God, by decrees. In fact, they say that God predestined the fall of Adam. If God predestined the fall of Adam, how can God judge Adam righteously? The only way someone can be judged righteously and fairly is if they exercise their own free will and they have to suffer their own consequences, right? If you force a person to do evil, how can you judge them for the evil you force them to do? And they say it in their book. R.C. Sproul, White, all those guys, Piper, they all admit it. God predestined the fall. Because nothing can happen from the decrees of God. Therefore, every rape... Every murder is God's decree. Is that your God? Is that the God of your Bible? Not mine. Wow. People don't think through the theology. He is transcendent, which means he is beyond our temporal world or our ability to comprehend and understand him intellectually to a full end. For he is outside and beyond our dimensions of time, space, and matter, as we stated this morning. He's beyond our finding now. 
God created everything out of nothing. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created bara out of nothing. The whole world. Wow. God told Abraham, is there anything too hard for the Lord? And the context is in reference to Israel's birth in Genesis 18.14. Nothing's impossible for God. By the way, he told that to Jeremiah too when Jeremiah was in jail. And God told him to go buy a parcel of land as evidence that he was going to bring them back after the 70-year captivity. And Jeremiah started doubting. And God told Jeremiah, Hey, Jerry, is there anything too hard for me? Amazing. God divided the Red Sea, made the sun stand still, fed Elisha through the ravens, protected Daniel from the lion's den, and on and on and on. Those predestined and who respond to the gospel will live eternally with Jesus. Angels and souls are said to be everlasting and will exist forever in that they will live on in eternity with God or separated from God. But not that they are eternal in and of themselves for both angels and man had a beginning though they do not have an end. God has never had a beginning. He is eternal. We will live in eternity, but we had a beginning. We weren't always before. There's a big distinction. He's the creator. We're the creature. There's a big difference. In fact, hell was made or the lake of fire was made for Satan and his angels, not one man. Matthew 25, 41 says. And yet men and women choose to be in eternity separated from God by rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. I said this morning, what would the men and women in hell tonight give to hear the gospel one more time? Once you die, there's no second opportunity. Your opportunity is while you're living. If you're here tonight, you don't know Jesus Christ, there's a time there where you're going to die. There's a date out there. There's a week. There's a month. You're going to die. And if you die without Jesus Christ, you will be eternally lost. I don't say that with a smack of the lips. I don't say that arrogantly. I'm telling you, flee your sin. Run to Jesus. Ask him to forgive you. So that when you die, you can be with the Lord. And he can transform your life. You can enjoy life here. It's simple. Now, Jesus said in John three fourteen through 15, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The serpent in the wilderness, a symbol of sin, brass, judgment, the pole, symbolic of the cross. Jesus said, back there, it was prophetic that I would be made sin and pay the price of sin for the redemption of man. Wow. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 9. If you believe what God said about his son and that you're a sinner and he alone can forgive your sin, that's faith, biblical faith. 
True biblical faith points you back to the revelation of God. Not what you think, not what you feel, not what the words say. What does the Bible say? If God would have said, listen, if you click your fingers three times, jump straight up and down, touch the ground three times and say, Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. If that's the manner of salvation, that would be it. That would be biblical faith. Whatever God has revealed, that is biblical faith. Everything else is foolishness. Deception. That's why the gospel must be preached with passion. Because it is the only way for people to be saved and forgiven of their sins. The manner of our election was that God predestined us. Notice secondly here. The purpose of our election is given. Paul declared that the purpose of our election was to be reconciled to God. Listen to his word. To adoption as sons. So the initial family God created was in the state of innocence in Genesis 1.27. They were created after the image and likeness of God. They're in chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Male and female. Okay? Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Okay? Not two men, not two women. Male and female. Any other identity is a false identity. If you want to identify yourself with the human race, there's only one identity for you, male or female. Your race, your color, whether you're bald, have long hair, whether you wear shorts, long pants, that's all irrelevant. Those are the only two categories for the human race, male and female. And the human race is distinguished from the animal kingdom, not an extension of it. All right? The biggest lie last century was evolution, that we come from the animal kingdom. The biggest lie this, this century is global warming, both a destruction to the human race. Adam was created first from the earth, then Eve from Adam's side, more refined. That's why he says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He saw the extension of himself completion. Both had a free will without influence of sin nature. They hadn't sinned yet. They were placed in the Garden of Eden, as you know, and Adam and Eve had everything they needed and walked in uninhibited, uninterrupted fellowship with God in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had only one restriction, to not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Or they would surely die. Genesis 2.17. Literally in the Hebrew says, dying you shall die. The minute Adam and Eve ate, they died spiritually and physical death began. When a baby is born, you realize they will take their first breath and they cry. That's the first day of their death. But we celebrate their birth. You've been dying if you're 20, 30, 40, you've been dying, 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 dying. One day you're finally ultimately going to die, really. That's what the Hebrew says. I don't care how you live to be 150, you're going to die. All right? Adam and Eve had the capacity to sin, but had not sinned as of yet when they were in the garden. The initial family God created was brought to a state of sinfulness, as you know. Adam and Eve both chose to disobey God and they ate of the tree of good and evil in Genesis 3. Satan, through the serpent, approached Eve and challenged the authority 
of God. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden, Genesis 3.1? You see, Satan always quotes scripture out of context. He knows scripture better than you. Out of context. Challenging God's authority. Satan then challenged the character and integrity of God. You will not surely die, Genesis 3, 4. God's just a killjoy. He's just trying to ruin your life. He doesn't want you to have fun. Remember we used to think like that when we were kids about our parents? Now your kids think that about you? Finally, Satan challenged the goodness of God. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, Genesis 3, 5. See, God just wants to keep you. You're going to be just like him. You're going to pass him up. He wants to keep you down. Ooh. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, the eye gate. Be careful what you see, how you see it. That it was Pleasant to the eyes, and the tree desired to make one wise pride. And she took of the fruit and ate. But with a mind blower is, look at Eve, she was the first one to experience spiritual death and physical death to begin. Having that experience first, you would think she wouldn't give to her husband. What did she do? Say, baby, look at this is good. She's in a fallen state already. It says, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Genesis 3 6. The eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. Genesis 3 7. All of a sudden, everything changed. Now they're spiritually dead. Physical death has stepped in. Now they have sin nature. Before the fall, they had the capacity to sin, but they hadn't sinned. Now they've sinned. Now all they can do is sin. They can't stop. You see, it's like measles. You can't give them unless you have them. Right? Eve was deceived, the Bible tells us. Adam transgressed. So the fall was attributed to who? Eve? No. To Adam. Why? He's the head of creation. God holds the man responsible for his home, for his wife, for his children. He's the head of creation. The woman was made for the man, not the man for the woman. Paul is very clear about that. Yet the man is not without the woman or the woman without the man. A woman is not just a, a maid to wash our clothes and a sex slave that just pleases us. She's a completion of man. So as Christians, we see our wives as men, as Christ the church, to protect, to provide, to care for. Not to just order around. But the man was responsible for the fall. The fall was attributed to Adam. He transgressed. She was deceived. Adam knew what he was doing. He transgressed. We're different, ladies and gentlemen. Women are deceived sexually by men. 
No man is ever deceived sexually. It's real clear. We transgress. Because a man is moved by what he sees and a woman is moved by what she feels. So you add the fallen nature. Destruction. That's why we need to repent and live by God. He enables us. He fills us. He gives us the ability, ladies and gentlemen. The consequences were that there are now two families in the world. The family line of Cain and Abel. The saved and the unsaved. God gave the promise of redemption through the son. Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. A woman doesn't have seed in herself. She provides the egg. The man provides the seed. That's the first prophecy of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. God expelled Adam and Eve from the garden lest they eat of the tree of, 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 of good and evil and live eternally fallen in Genesis 3, 22 through 24. So God, in what appears to be God being cruel is really God's love. He boots them out so they don't eat because he knew now they're fallen, they're going to crawl in and try to take that food. And being in a fallen state, they would live eternally in a fallen state and the plan of redemption couldn't come to pass. What appears to be cruelty is really God's compassion and love and goodness towards man. You as a father and mother, when you do something for your son or your daughter, they think you're just being cruel. But you've been around the block a couple of times. So you know what's best, right? In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifested. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brethren. 1 John 3.10 There must be a drastic change in your life and mine, what I used to be, what I am now. That's how I know I'm a Christian. Living for Christ, by his spirit, by his word. You're not sinless, you're not perfect, but you don't live the way you used to, you don't do the things you used to. You know what's right, you know what's wrong, you know what pleases God, you know what doesn't please him. We cannot plead ignorance any longer. The spiritual blessing Paul is stating here is being predestined to adoption of sons. Notice that, being reconciled back to God. The phrase adoption of sons means the placing of a person in the position of a son to whom it doesn't really belong, naturally. The word Paul uses here is used by the Romans, and they could, they could take a Roman, a Roman adult of a home, could take a slave... And adopt him. And this word means he would be adopted and considered and viewed as a natural born son. And he could bequeath everything he had to that adopted slave and exclude his other natural sons. This is the word. You and I are fallen and yet he adopts us and makes us sons and daughters of God by his grace. Wow. Wow. This is the word that is applied to us former sinners. By nature, enemies of God. And now, he's given us a divine nature that we can worship God, that we can love God, that we can desire to please God, that we can understand his word. You see, tonight you, you chose to come to church and hear the word of God. Others did not. You're going to be the better for it. Because God is speaking to your heart. 
I don't care what I'm talking about. I could be talking out of Leviticus. If you come with an open heart, God's going to nail you. Okay? Sometimes people think that their husband and wife tell me about them. They say, you know, you, you told him about me. He's been down. God just does things. God, speaks, God nails you. You hear the gospel. God's going to deal with you. Absolutely. The phrase adoption as sons is found four other times. In Romans 8.15, in um, Romans 8.23, and in Romans 9.4, and in Galatians 4.5. Those are the other four times. Bringing us into a personal loving relationship, calling him Abba, Daddy. Giving us the expectant hope of a transformed body one of these days. Referring to the remnant of Israel and those who believe, the believers in Christ Jesus who receive him through repentance. You do not become a Christian by joining a church. If you're not a Christian tonight, if you've never repented, you're not a Christian because you entered this sanctuary or this auditorium any more than walking into a garage makes your car. You're born again into the kingdom of God because you repent of your sins. Now notice Paul declared that the purpose was accomplished by Jesus, by Jesus Christ to himself. Notice that. The phrase by Jesus Christ indicates the means by which the adoption, uh, adopted position was made possible. It's through Christ. By indicating the grounds or the reason for our sonship because of Christ. We are adopted sons and daughters through Christ. We are adopted sons and daughters by the transition of Jesus through his death and resurrection. We are adopted sons and daughters through the mediator role of Jesus Christ. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5 Not Mary, not Peter, not the Pope, not Daffy Duck, nobody. Jesus Christ. No one died for you but Jesus Christ. Okay? It's not your pastor. It's not the elders. It's Jesus Christ. No one else. The name Jesus, as you know, is a Greek name from the name Joshua in the Hebrew. It means Yahweh is salvation. Who is Jesus? Yahweh is salvation. Same name. The contraction of Yahweh Shua. The title Christ is a title, not a name. It means the anointed, the Messiah of God. The one he promises, Genesis 3.15. The word is translated in the Hebrew, Mashiach. The anointed of God. Those who believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died and rose from the dead, and that he atoned for their sins, can be saved by choosing, by deciding to repent. Not because God predestined them and they have no choice. That's not biblical. The saints believing in Christ blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. It says here in chapter 1, verse 1, 3, and 4. The sonship of the believer is in relationship to the Father. Look, look at the word, to himself. The personal pronoun refers to the Father, not the Son. The personal capital is capitalized here indicating the proper name referring to God, the Father. We have pointed out that all three persons of the Trinity are involved in the process. The Father is in verse 3 through 6. The Son is in verse 7 through 12. And the Holy Spirit in verse 13 and 14. All three have their part in salvation. All three are God. 
each one ending with the understanding that salvation is to the praise and the glory of God alone, not man. Verse 6, 12, and 14. No one can boast. The Father being the first person of the Trinity, as noted in verse 3, the Father is the source or origin. The Son is the channel and the Holy Spirit is the agent. The, pers- the three persons are three persons, yet one God, one Lord, one Spirit, one Savior. When you think of the Trinity, don't add. You end up with three. Multiply. One times one times one is one. Three persons, one God. You are an inferior trinity. Body, soul, and spirit. Have you ever introduced yourself? Oh, this is Xavier's body, Xavier's soul. No, but you're an inferior trinity. Creating the image and likeness of God. Simple. The Father and Son are co-equal. By the titles, God, Lord. Yet the priority of the Father is evident by the fact that He is always mentioned first. When you adopt a child by choice, you give them the place of a natural son and they receive all the benefits of life. This is what God has done for you and I. Listen to some of the effects and evidences of being a son and daughter of God. But as many as received unto them, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, John 1.12. If you repent and you believe in Jesus Christ, he's transformed your life. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Are you being led by the Spirit of God? Romans 8.14. Are you obeying the Spirit? Then it's evidence you're a son of God, daughter of God. For you did not receive the spirit of adoption again to fear, but received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Romans 8.15. Literally, Daddy. There's a relationship. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs and heirs of God join heirs with Jesus Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, then we may also be glorified together. Romans 8, 16 through 17. With all these benefits. I will be a father to you. You will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. 2 Corinthians 6, 18. What a privilege. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with a son. For that son, or what son is there whom the father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be subjection to the Father of spirits and live? Hebrews 12, 5 through 9. Of course we should. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. 1 John 3, 1. Remember how everybody liked you? You thought they were the greatest of people and then you became a Christian and where were your friends? You were the life of the party. Now you're a drag. You became a Jesus freak. But you've never been more alive and enjoyed life more than ever before. 
Because your eyes are open. Hmm. The purpose for election was for the adoptions of sons and daughters. Third and last, the means of our election. Notice the last part. According to the good pleasure of his will. So Paul revealed the fathers chose us sovereignly. We talked about it a little bit this morning. The sovereignty of God is described according to the good pleasure of his will. Notice that. There was no compulsion or obligation, but according to his good pleasure. He did it because it pleased him. God's good pleasure expresses the kindly intent, the delight, the satisfaction, desire that God had for us, having compassion for us. His sovereignty is in conformity to his nature. The phrase appears nine times in the New Testament. It's found twice here in Ephesians, verse 5 and verse 9 of chapter 1. The origin of God's good pleasure is his will. You know where you find God's will? In God's word. You don't just say, okay, Lord, show me your will and just kind of just contemplate. No. God's will is found in God's word. The word will means what one wishes or determines to be done. The word expresses the purpose, choice, and inclination of God's self-determination. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1, 11 through 12. Wow. You see, the sovereignty of God means he can do as he wills, when he wills, to who he wills, as often as he wills, but he never violates your will. And what he does is absolutely just. He can't contradict his perfection, his nature of holiness. It's impossible. So you never, I'm not ever worried about God doing something wrong. I'm worried about me. This is the rules. You ready? Everything that comes good for my life, God gets the glory. Everything that comes bad, I get the credit. Are we good with that? Okay? That's the way it is. The sovereignty of God is manifested in perfect wisdom, resulting from all the attributes that he has. They're perfect. God's sovereignty makes all the right decisions, perfect justice, having the benefit of man in mind. Sovereignty, like foreknowledge of God, never violates the free will of man. He gave Adam and Eve a choice. Eat, don't eat. Now Calvinists say that God predestined them to fall. It's not what my Bible teaches me. That makes God evil. The sovereignty of God, as the Esau and Jacob in Romans 8, 11 through 16, Calvinists teach that that's individual salvation. No. Jacob is the nation Israel. Esau is the nation Edom. Out of context. Dishonest. Deceptive. The sovereignty of God regarding Pharaoh... He hardened his heart because Pharaoh didn't pay attention. He didn't repent. So people hear the gospel, they don't repent, and God respects your wish. He just hardens your heart. Okay, I'll strengthen your hard heart. You don't want to reject me? You want to reject me? I'll strengthen you in that. It says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Then a different word is used. And God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Wow. Well, why didn't God stop? Well, you, didn't, you, you, you said you didn't want to go to heaven. You said you want to go to hell. Well, okay, he gave it to you. 
Why are you blaming God? Ooh. The sovereignty of God is the major theme dealing with Israel and the Gentiles in Romans 9. The sovereignty of God never excludes the free will of man, his own responsibility. So seeing that God is all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing, possessing all knowledge, foreknowledge, and everything else to the epitome of perfection, are you worried about the sovereignty of God? I'm not. I'm the one I have to worry about. Not God. Because I have a free will. And we, we think the S on our chest stands for Superman. It stands for stupid. You see? Nebuchadnezzar said after he regained his sanity, you remember God turned him into an animal. Listen to what he said when he regained his sanity. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Daniel 4.35 I expect to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. Now I see a parallel today. Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel with Trump and Pence. Pence is a very godly man. Now, I don't know if Trump's going to be saved or not. But I know that God in His grace has given us at least four-year window time before judgment comes. All right? It's real simple, ladies and gentlemen. Look around. Don't fall for fake news. Open your eyes. The market did... 2% 2% average for 10 years. It's up to 12% with all the opposition, all the fake news and everything. It says it all. It's real simple. But men and women want the destruction of this nation so much. And it's prophetic, by the way. Okay? For the Antichrist to appear, the United States has to be removed. It's prophetic, okay? So this is just mercy, okay? But buckle up, okay? If it would have gone the other way, the church would have been in real bad shape right now, this year. If they continue doing what they're doing, Los Angeles is next Chicago. Men are bent on the destruction of this nation. And we deserve it. We deserve judgment. All I have to do is mention one thing. The 57 million kids we've killed in abortion. That's enough. That's enough for God to judge us. Let alone everything else. Outnumbering the number of soldiers that have died in all the wars. By millions. Our enemies kill those men in defense of our nation. Mothers have killed their own babies. Wow. Maybe you had an abortion. Then the grace of God is extended to you. So He can forgive you and heal you and give you that peace. And you can rest in Jesus Christ. 
He doesn't want to condemn you. He wants to heal you. He wants to forgive you because he loves you. Wow. We must distinguish between the various terms used and not make them synonymous when they are not. All according to the foreknowledge of God in harmony with what he knows beforehand. God certainly knows in harmony with his foreknowledge who is going to accept him and who's going to reject him. But it isn't because he predestined them to be saved unconditionally in election or predestined them to damnation, but because they exercise their free will to believe the gospel and repent. They responded to the gospel. God, knowing this, he then will and has predestined the saved to be conformed into Christ and receive the blessings. This does not violate God's initiation or man's free will. But to equate foreknowledge or the word foreknow, as John Calvin or the Calvinists do with the meaning of foreordination or predestination or election rather than knowledge beforehand is a great error. So they mix their definition of the terms to teach this nonsense. Peter distinguishes between determinate counsel or purposes of God from the foreknowledge of God. Listen carefully. Him being delivered by the determinate purpose and foreknowledge of God, speaking of Jesus Christ, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, Acts 2.23. If the Jews carried out the decree of God, then they were obeying God, but they were charged being personally responsible for acting for their own decision. If God predestined them to crucify Jesus and force them to do it, why is God punishing them and condemning them? Pray tell, let me, tell me. <laughs> Paul makes the same distinction for whom he did for no. He also did predestinate, Romans 8.29. The word also denotes the differentiation, making it abundantly clear that God's foreknowledge is not the same as predestination. Foreknowledge is the reason for the predestination. Do you see that clearly? Okay? If I foreknow something, I can declare it. Okay? And if God predestined the elect out of his good pleasure of his will, and he damned also the greater part of humanity, as Calvinists teach, out of his good pleasure. And they say that. That it pleases God that he damned the majority of people. Read their books. You'll blow your mind. What is the sense of mentioning foreknowledge then? There's no need to know anything. It is a mere personal decision by God, regardless of whether we feel it's just or whatever. God just does what he wants. No, he cannot contradict his attribute. He cannot contradict his holiness, his justice, his love, his compassion. It's impossible. 
So when Calvinists or, 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 or um, Reformed theology teaches you that God predestined the fall and that God is responsible for everything that happens by decrees and nothing can be altered, that's Greek determinism. That's not the God of the Bible. Because you're making God guilty of every crime that goes on every second of the day. Every injustice. And nothing can be altered. That's foolishness. It's blasphemous, really. So the means of our election was according to the what? The good pleasure of His will. Why? Because He loves you. God loves you and I so much. He loves the world so much that he made a way to get to heaven. But he doesn't force you to go to heaven. You have all the right to go to hell. But you don't have to. Once again, what men and women would give in hell right now to hear the gospel one more time. They can't do it anymore. You die, your eternity is sealed. And it breaks the heart of God when people perish. Wow. Wow. This is the explanation about election described in these three ways. The manner of our election was that God predestined us. The purpose for our election was for the adoption of sons. The means of our election was according to the good pleasure of his will. Why would anybody have any problem with this? If you teach election and predestined according to the Bible, there's no contradiction. When you believe what Calvinism or Reformed theology teaches, it's a total contradiction and really a great insult to the attributes of God and God himself. That's not my God. Not the God of my Bible. And so, you need to be clear on what the Bible says. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your grace, your goodness. Thank you for tonight. And Lord, we do thank you for your goodness to us, Lord, to be able to give us understanding and to study your word and to be able to compare scripture with scripture and that by your grace, Lord, you lead and you guide us. So thank you. I thank you for every person tonight. And Lord, for those that are listening over the internet, we pray for them. If there's anybody here in the auditorium or over the internet that doesn't know you, Lord, that you would save them. They would call on your name. Lord, that you would convict them of their sin and draw them to you and they would call on your name and be saved. If you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God has brought you to be saved. If you're over the internet, then this is your prayer of repentance right now. You can accept Christ Jesus by grace through faith. God has initiated, letting you know that you're a sinner, headed for hell. But he's also let you know that he sent his son to die for you, made him sin for you, that you might be the righteousness of God in him. And if you see yourself as lost by the grace of God, and now you get to choose whether you believe the gospel and believe that Jesus can forgive you or whether it's just a bunch of malarkey. It's up to you. Your choice will determine where you spend eternity. God does not determine that. You do. If you repent of your sins, God will transform you. He will change your life And you will experience life like never before as you walk with God by the grace of God. If that's your decision, this is your prayer to him right now, right where you sit. And he's going to change you and make you born again right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. 
Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.